0: everybody, and welcome to another podcast episode. In this episode, we're going to talk about Linux migration strategies um, for corporates, uh, large corporates, and for small SME companies. I'm Mark Clark. I live in South Africa in the city of Johannesburg, and I work for an open source solutions company. I'm joined, as always, by my co host Darlene Parker. Hi, Darlene, how are you?
1: Hey, Mark. I'm fantastic. Glad to be with you this morning. And, uh, yeah, so my name is Darlene Parker, and I'm in Calgary, Alberta, Canada, and uh, I work for a, a Linux-based development company, and this is, uh, again, another area of interest for me to, to be able to help people make the decision
0: and feel comfortable uh, adopting open source solutions. Okay, great. Um, before we move into our major um, main topic for today, um, we want to have a quick chat with Mohammed Ayad. We, sp- we spoke to Mohammed uh, on our last episode. Um, he's a Linux security expert in Libya, and we thought it would be a good idea maybe to get him to come in um, every episode or whenever there's anything of interest in the Linux security area to give us a bit of a, a chat about that and a rundown of what's happening there. Hi, Mohammed. How are you today?
2: Hi, Mark. How are you? All right, thanks. I'm
0: good, thanks. Yeah. So, Mohammed, uh, we got you on the show today to um, do a, a, a segment on Linux security, and uh, you want to talk about Linux viruses. You would like to just explain yeah. a little bit? I thought there weren't any viruses for Linux.
2: Actually, Mark, one of the vulnerabilities of the Linux system, the user who have the misconception that if, the, if that uh, cannot be infected by computer viruses in Linux, well, many expert, uh, security experts, uh, uh, talking about that growth in Linux machine. even Linux super popular, it's still going to be hard uh, to make viruses for Linux. All Linux, Windows machine acting the same. If we send a file to someone, it will for Windows machine, uh, it will be executed. This exec, that file execute the same on the almost Windows machine. On Linux this is not uh, and never will be the case uh, because of the all different Windows Manager, X Windows we have in Linux and desktop. Things, things on uh, uh, different like uh, we have Gnome and KDE and XFC. So now uh, you will have to, if you are a virus uh, writer, you have to write your viruses to uh, address all these different environments so then the the top of that that even if you have a suse or Ubuntu to fedora all of these distros using the same uh, using the gnome but we still uh, well if uh, they act different like for example the permissions on each and uh, different uh, so some of these distros using uh, sodo and the other don't
0: yeah, So it's kind of like uh, Biodiversity as well The more diversity you have the more chance you've got of surviving A, a disease If there's no like diversity then Single disease or can come along and wipe yeah. out the entire population And that's sort of exactly. like similar to um, Genetically modified foods And why everybody's scared about that Because if something If you know, everybody turns to genetically modified foods in the next minute there's a virus and it wipes out the entire world's You know um, yeah. Food supply well, So yeah similar type of thing
2: what, well, what we, we keep hearing these days, uh, people s- uh, keep saying Windows is so popular, which is why Windows machine get hit more. Uh, that is the case of that desktop. But let's look uh, at the server. Uh, there are uh, a way more Linux and uh, Unix server on the internet,
0: That's more true. than
2: uh, Windows server. So they still, uh, Windows the server gets attacked and uh, uh, hacked more than Windows uh, Linux server so to, to, to run Windows server on the internet you have to be firewall it uh, into a twilight zone and you have to be protected while millions of Linux server and uh, they are directly connected and facing the internet and that they, 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 they don't uh, face in this problem so they keep seeing that's a uh, population of uh, Windows that's why it's targeted and they, they we can find a lot of viruses uh, under Windows but we can see there's a million of Linux server on the internet so this is not the, an excuse I think yeah
0: yeah yeah I know look I agree with you I always hear that, that argument as you say you know oh well the reason there's no viruses for Win- Linux is because so few people use it but as you say I mean I think the netcraft surveys always show that Apache Linux servers are about responsible for 67% of the world's yeah. internet servers. 60%, yeah.
2: Yeah. 60%, 65%. I think, yeah. Yeah. And uh, Linux, actually, Linux these days, Linux have uh, over 60 million users. So mm-hmm. if it had the security flaws anywhere near Windows issues, so then they have to be exploited by now. Yeah, 60 million yeah. users.
0: Yeah, no, I agree. Also, you know, I think that it's it's always just marketing, you know, good uh, what do you call it, FUD from Microsoft about the whole security thing side of things.
2: Back to the Linux uh, virus history, mm-hmm. uh, it was initially detected uh, in the uh, I think 1996 mm-hmm. with exploited vulnerabilities being discovered that virus called uh, virus called uh, a scalp stock I think stock from okay. Australia. Staug, Staug was able to exploit Linux design, which calls for user and application to to log in before any questionable operation. So the virus is actually functioned by exploiting uh, vulnerabilities in the kernel. So they fixed the kernel and they uh, released a, a patch for kernel, and that fixed the yeah. by okay. So the, the the history of Linux viruses, uh, Linux starting from 1919 19, uh, six or seven. That is long story, a long history. I think it's about over twelve, t- two, 12 years.
0: And is that the, that was the first virus for Linux? Eh?
2: Yeah. This is, the, I think, it was the first virus for Linux.
0: Um, yeah. Yeah. So let's to show that people have been trying to target Linux for a long time, but they haven't been really that successful. That um. At, yeah.
2: At th- there's no uh, available r- virus. There's no available. Uh, until this day we don't see any viable fires or epidemic or widespread viruses yeah. like or like windows and uh, if we will talk about uh, statistics for viruses we can find about uh, uh, over 80,000 uh, viruses for windows under <laughs> windows and only 800 virus or trojan for linux only and none of the Linux viruses become wild uh, uh, spread. Most of them only uh, proof of concepts or uh, they confined uh, to the testing or laboratory. Compared to Windows, they are over, as I said, 80,000 viruses. And we can't find a hundred of these viruses cause the wide uh, spread uh, damage. Yeah. yeah. And we can see that.
0: Yeah, no, for sure. And I think as well, I mean, most of the security breaches do happen tend to be these brute force attacks. So, once again, it's the human factor that comes into account if, the, if any um, servers are sort of uh, a hack is normally misconfiguration um, and yeah. poor poor passwords.
2: Yeah, they, they're actually using a technique of uh, finding a vulnerability uh, on the some surface bugs, actually. And uh, they... Take the privilege uh, from that surface, and uh, they call this technique uh, privilege escalation. The cross-platform viruses uh, we can uh, hear okay. it about about this uh, technique these day. Okay. The, mm-hmm. the yeah yeah cross-platform viruses. Uh, it's driven by the popularity for cross-platform application. Like for example, uh, yeah for okay. example uh, mm-hmm. open office we can see uh, uh, a version for mac or a version for linux a version for windows so the, the the hackers or virus writer they they targeted these uh, kind of uh, uh, applications by for example from linux user and i use it uh, open office to save a file and uh, i pass that file to a friend our colleague and uh, that file it will it will be infected by that viruses and that virus doesn't work in under Linux mm-hmm. so the 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 other side will trust on the sender so it will uh, open the attachment file it will be infected with that virus yeah we can see that and uh, mm-hmm. I think that the, the, the first uh, uh, cross-platform viruses mm-hmm. come called bad boonie Bad bunny. Bad bunny. Bad bunny, yeah. Hmm, yeah. sure.
0: Okay, Don't so about it. no, no, I haven't. That's interesting. So basically this using Linux to disseminate the, the virus, but it doesn't actually sort of infect the Linux machine itself. Yeah. Yeah. So it's kind of like you Linux is a host for the virus.
2: Yeah, distribution carrier. Yeah.
0: Okay, oh, that's interesting. So there's all these new new ways that people are finding to try and infect basically uh Windows machines.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, also there's a uh, Linux binary viruses that uh, infect the executable files. So actually binary files is a little bit uh, not more n- not dangerous because they must be writable by the user mm-hmm. activating that virus is that. Uh, not likely to be uh, the case chances are the program are owned by uh, by route and mm-hmm. the user is running from non-privileged account even if the virus is successfully infected the program owned by the user it's a it, task of propagation is made much more difficult by the limited privileges of the user account. and uh, uh, this is the uh, uh, there's uh, as I told you, there's another technique used to 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 avoid this using a uh, privilege escalation. Uh, okay. the privilege yeah, the privilege escalation is just uh, is, uh, act of exploiting uh, or a bug or design uh, fault in the software application to to gain access to resources which normally would uh, would have been uh, protected from the from an application or user. The result is that uh, the application perform action with more privileges that than attended to by the application developer or the system administrator. That's the technique is, uh, okay. yeah, privilege escalation.
0: Yeah, privilege escalation. That typically relies on things like buffer overruns and and all kinds of things like that yeah. right, to be able to run the yeah, yeah, to run the, the, yeah. So Mohammed, in our next episode, you're going to be joining us again. Do you have any idea what issues you will be covering? Um, for our next episode,
2: yeah. What about uh, talking about root kit?
1: Okay, well, thanks so much to uh, Mohammed for that contribution. It's always, it's been very interesting, and I'm sure our listeners can always take something away. And uh, we look forward to hearing from you on an ongoing basis. And uh, like I say we can all learn something all the time. So thanks again, Mohammed.
0: Okay, great. Now we can move on to our to our main topic, which is Linux or open source migration um, strategies. Um, just to sort of say that most of my experience with migrating to open source software um, for companies is relates to SMEs, but a lot of the principles that apply to SMEs obviously apply to to large corporates as well, and to obviously the scale is just a bit a bit different. Um, And I think there's two ways that open source typically gets into corporates. One is like a sort of conscious decision um, by by management to introduce open source into the company. And other is where it sort of just infiltrates the the organization, typically through the IT department or um, business units where they have their own IT departments if it's a larger corporate, larger enterprise, where, where technicians and technical people start using open source solutions and building their own, um, you know, uh, solutions to the problems that they are trying to, trying to find find answers to in their, in their business. Um, so typically, you go to any company in the world, you're going to find there's some kind of Linux, open source software already in use in those companies, even if it's not an official policy of the, the corporate itself or the IT department that's in there. Um, but we're going to talk more about the, the conscious decision to, to to move towards open source software that a corporate might take. And that typically might be as a result of the RT department and technical people using open source software and finding out that it does solve their problems and you know, getting experience with the benefits that it offers them and then deciding, well, maybe it's, it's better to take a more formal approach and roll this out across the servers and the desktops and the corporates.
1: Mm-hmm. And, Mark, I think there are two deciding factors that have, uh, have encouraged people to look at an alternative. And one is the current economic uh, climate around the world right now and And I, from my own experience i t budgets have been particularly hard hit uh lots of i t people being laid off these days <laughs> and um so how do they make the budgets that they've been allocated? how do they stretch them how do they make them work and uh in the meantime still meeting the demands of their users in the business so and also, I think the other thing is is that um With the advent of things like Vista and and people having to to learn a, a Vista and Microsoft 2007, people have had to relearn again. So it opens a window of opportunity. If you're going to be learning something, you might as well learn, maybe look at an alternative such as Linux.
0: Yeah, I think that's true there. You know, some of the, a lot of the corporates recently. With Office 2007 and Vista and all the sort of retrain that would have to happen there anyway, sort of looked at it and said, well, they might as well use as an opportunity to to switch to open source solutions as as an alternative to the proprietary solution and save some more longer term costs as well. You know, when these corporates start looking at at moving towards open source, one of the key things is to have management buy-in and to have, uh, you know, the business side actually champion the whole process. Because really it should be a business decision to, to move towards open source and not a technical decision. And that's true of any, of any project. Um, you know, it's well documented how you run um, projects in corporates in terms of having change management in place and processes to, to roll out the changes and make sure that you take the people who the change is affecting with you to prevent uh, or, to, or to at least minimize user resistance to change. So yeah Mm -hmm. So I think it all starts off You know If you're doing a conscious Sort of um, move To open source software It starts off With top management And having to put a plan In place to do that
1: Right And I think You know it's not just like we talked about uh, before it's not just budgetary concerns though i think uh, you know i mean obviously we have total cost ownership and and all those kind of considerations, software licensing but i don't think it's only just focused on the dollar amount as well as you know especially if you have an organization that's uh... has some in-house development teams and you know can, Work on some of their own proprietary software that they need. I mean, they're used to being able to see the code, work with the code, and and you know, being flexible and being able to, um, you know, mod. Uh, what was I going to say? You know, to customize stuff to their own needs. I think is important to some uh, some businesses. Do you agree, Mark?
0: Yeah, I would agree with you. I think there there's sort of uh, two types of of areas there where open source can be used, and business. one is sort of Open source applications, and the other one is sort of when you've got your own in-house development team and in-house software that you're developing. But um, that that's definitely forms part of the whole migration strategy and benefits that can accrue to a corporate when using open source. But I think the you know all of these sort of things identifying what when before you start any kind of major project, you must carry out an analysis of what your needs are in the organisation, and then sort of Mm -hmm. identify what are the what are the benefits that are going to arise from this and what are the costs involved in the whole migration, and then also making sure that you put key performance indicators in place that you can sort of monitor and measure to say, has this project been a success? Has it achieved its objectives? So in terms of doing that for open source, really open source in your corporates, you, know, you need to identify what are the benefits, and obviously it will be things like, you know not only as you're saying, Darlene, not only things such as um, uh, licensing fees and all of that, but also things such as intangibles, um, you know, which, is, which you were talking about there, which is hard to quantify in terms of reduced development time for internal projects if you're going to be sort of using a, take an open source project and start using it as a basis for your own customized software inside your organization.
1: Alright, so the next thing I think is, like you said, um, getting that key plan in place and thinking about things like timelines, you know, what existing software do they have, do an inventory. I guess that goes along with your needs analysis that you spoke of. But, uh, you know, inventory, what you're currently using, try to find a matching open source uh, application that will go along with it. All the pre-planning, I think, makes the, uh, the rollout that much more easier.
0: I just think as part of the plan, you must always include um, user training, and you must expect mm-hmm. that there's going to be resistance from users to change. And that's not just because it's open source. Um, it's users resist any kind of change. I think anybody that's been in mm-hmm. any project in any corporate of any size will know that, um, you know, people don't like change and they resist change. So you need to make sure that you manage that, that people aspect of the whole, the whole migration. I think that's, you know, and once again, it's not something which is peculiar to an open source migration. Uh, it's something that any any project and any sort of good project manager or change management um, person is big corporate. will know how to handle it and what needs to be done and put in place for that. And, of course, what does, as we did say, of course, when we reiterated, it's key to have... Business buy into it and have and have top management champion the whole migration process because they're not hmm. convinced of the benefits of, of doing the move um, you know you're, you're going to find it very hard to convince the the end users of the benefits as well so typically you know if you're going to have your top managers say everyone must use open Office and um, you know the MD still and the CEO are still using microsoft office you 're going to find it very hard to convince your other um, manages lower down the line that there is a you know that they should switch as well. So it's mm-hmm. it's key to make sure that the whole people aspect of it is handled properly.
1: Right, and I have to concur with you because I um I've been involved when we rolled when we went from uh, NT Windows NT to XP or when we brought in Lotus Notes into an organization, and and helping people get adapted to that because those are the intangible costs or those hidden costs that we also talk about was how much time. Do the uh, does the support desk or the desk side support people spend assisting the the end user? So when you talk about yeah, I agree. Like put in the training, um, you know, as part of the plan. You know, like I always suggest setting up a, a training lab where people can go spend some time on the application before they come to work on a Monday morning and it's already installed on their machines.
0: Yeah. And I think, you know, just in terms of the technical technicalities around the rollout, I mean, how, in my experience, how it typically happens in corporates, you know, it normally starts on the server side, so part of your plan would be, okay, initially you're going to start migration on the server side to open source software. So it'll be things like replacing your mail servers and your file servers with open source alternatives and putting those in place. Um, and what's great about that, of course, it's, it's transparent to the end user, so they're not really disrupted that much. So you're not going to face a lot of resistance um, from from end users something like that is you know you're migrating your server side over to open source software and at the same time it allows you to get your central IT department a bit more skilled up in open source how it works um, you know, the philosophy behind it, uh, how you go about finding assistance and help with open source, and also obviously finding things like partners that the, that the corporate can use in this open source um, move or to support the, the various applications that they're going to be putting in place there.
1: And I know that uh, in our re- my research for today, or both of our research for today, we did talk about the successful rollout they've had in France with their police force, and it was a, a it looked like it was about a three-year project that they engaged on, starting in two thousand and four, uh, and still ongoing. Actually, so that I should make that five years now. <laughs> um, so they're still ongoing today with with their rollout to bring it to all of the uh, all the precincts.
0: Yeah, look, I think uh, you know Europe, it tends to be much more larger migrations in Europe over to open source um, than in most other countries in the world, especially amongst the governments in Europe and the sort of municipalities, um, a lot of people moving over. So the well-documented one about the French police force, I mean, they're moving over, I think it was something like 4,000 or 5,000 desktops over to, to open source solutions. And yeah, it's taken them a while to, to get there. And That's the thing. Sometimes it can be a long-term plan to move people over. You don't just move them all over suddenly. Um, and I think that's the, you know, they're following a well documented process for doing that. In fact, the European Union has released quite a lot of research and um, recommendations on how to move to, towards open source. And you know, if you search on the, on the internet, especially a site called, let me just get the address here for you, guard.connector.rt, um, they basically put the, the European Union's um, manual on the internet there. Um, I'll put that in the, in the show notes for people who are interested, um, guard.connector.rt. <clears throat> and so, yeah, so Europe seems to be learning a lot of lessons and actually, you know, following the open source, uh, what do you call it, methodology or ethos and sharing its findings with people. I think the biggest, you know, I think most people are comfortable with moving over server-side stuff to open source software um, because it's, you know, it's relatively easy to do and your technicians are skilled up. It's on the desktop where, you know, if you're going to migrate people across to open source desktop solutions, where you find a lot of challenges around that. You know, and I think right. there's some interesting um, techniques people use to sort of get users to move over to open source solutions. And one of them, for example, is to sort of start... By by implementing open source solutions on Windows operating systems or whatever other proprietary operating system they might be running, Um, you know, so something like Thunderbird for the email clients or um, start using OpenOffice to replace Microsoft Office. So by the time the guys move over, they're really familiar with the applications because, I mean, obviously there's two levels. There's the operating system and the applications.
1: Right. So I think that's what we would call, what I would call like a warm migration where we start uh, doing it in steps and I think we can outline those together today. And like I concur with you, Mark, just trying to get them to, uh, so instead of just a hard migration when like I say they come in on Monday morning, they got a whole different operating system and all their applications are different. This is a, a better way to do it in a staged approach and, uh, the most com- like you say, like, uh, switch them over with the most commonly used applications such as uh, like you say, their open office, their browser, their web clients, um, and so on. And then uh, after that, I think the next important thing is to find uh, somebody in there in the. You know, in each group or office location that's probably a power user, we would call them, and we you could train up that person so they could kind of be the go-to person. They would be the familiar. They could be the change agent in the group, right, to help drive, be part of your change, uh, imp- you know, implementing the change.
0: I agree with you. That, that comes down to that people management issue that we were talking about earlier. So as part of the plan, you should identify your sort of key Individuals in any um, business unit that will be needed to be trained up, and you know, they will be the guys that will champion the, the open source solution within their business unit, um, and mm-hmm. sort of get adoption going within it. So yeah, so I think that's also a key part of the of, of the plan there. And to to go with that, you know, there are certain sort of you must have training sessions for these guys, and also have incentives to get people to to switch over and learn new things. And I think that mm-hmm. always encourages people to. To adopt the new the new technology, so you've got to show them the benefits that it has over the old technology.
1: Okay, so I think it's important to identify users that uh, will be easily migrated or easily trained. The people that use basic applications, like I wouldn't go in and start with something using AutoCAD or you know special high end graphics programs right away, because those are the ones who will resist it the most. I think it's to start with the the groups that uh, will benefit from the change uh, easily. I think those, it's important to identify those people and, like you say, uh, train them up. And again, just get them prepared for the change. You know, give them some realistic expect, expectations and uh, get them hands-on working with it.
0: Yeah. And I mean, as you say, there might be some applications which you absolutely can't migrate, or some users which you can't migrate. You know, maybe they're doing something in in a spreadsheet application which cannot be replicated in an open source alternative. You know, in those cases. Part of your plan was to be to identify those guys and identify what it is that they need and whether they can or can't be done and whether it's just you know people resisting change but um, you know in, in that particular case as well it doesn't mean you have to abandon the whole project um, you know you can look for alternatives like running them in virtual machines for these chaps or running them in wine or something like crossover office so it shouldn't you know what you want to avoid doing is allowing one of the individuals to sort of avoid the entire migration path. Um, because then that always creates dissent and from other people who claim that they can't do their job because you know, they can't access all of these different technologies that, they, that they're that used to. So it's a case of also potentially complete either-or situation. You can sort of also put open-source solutions and let them co- cohabit, as it will, or cooperate with um, existing proprietary solutions in the organization. But it must be done in a controlled manner and not in sort of like ad hoc or you know depending what the person who's using the application feels Um, just make sure that there's a clear clear reason why you're staying on the and the proprietary solutions, your objective is to save costs, cut costs, and obviously get the other benefits of open source software.
1: Right, and I believe, too, as you work through your process, things will change and you need to stay on top of it. Like when uh, when I was reading about the French migration there, when they first started, um, there was a lot of resistance because people were very reliant on the shared calendar feature of Outlook. But that's when they started in 2004. There really wasn't an open source alternative to it. Uh, Thunderbird did not have it, but, but now, as we, you know, here we are in 2009. Well, I know at my office, we all use Google Calendar. It's a shared calendar. It's on the net. It has nothing to do with our email clients. Or there's also a, a lightning add-on for Thunderbird that gives you that calendar functionality. So things do come up. Things are being developed all the time. And I think as part of your process, you need to stay abreast of that and look for the stuff that may help you along the way. I was just also going to mention too, with so many, um, applications now being on the web, like Cloud computing and so on that people aren't really so reliant on their OS anymore you know so that's another consideration to think about too uh,
0: look that's true a lot of the stuff is browser-based these days and that's one of the benefits that you know the internet and uh, the web offered people was that freedom you know to easily deploy new changes and Delta access from any operating system so you were independent of the of the way you' were accessing the, that, that particular application. And just to, mm-hmm. to reiterate, one of the key things to do in this whole process, of course, is to continue to record the benefits that you're, that you're gaining and to make sure you're measuring the benefits and how long it's taking people to train people, um, how costs are being reduced, all of those good things. Because at the end of the day, to prove your project a success, you need to make sure that you have the the proof to make sure that you return on investment for this change. Because, I mean it is going to cost a bit of change, there's no doubt about that. To say that it's, that it actually um was worthwhile to, to to carry this out. And to also show management as well that look this is the decision that was made and this is the outcome of, of that decision. Because often what happens in these processes is no one measures the, the outcomes. So then everybody sort of remembers the the pain but not the benefits of the of the whole move over process. You know, and typically you go with a a curve where you know, you have to get people past the dip, as it were, when they're changing over. Where there's a lot of resistance, and start moving on the upside of the curve. They start realizing the benefits to their everyday um, life in terms of working and ability to to get their job done.
1: mm mm-hmm. And like when you talk about measuring costs and so on, like things like. You know, you have an IT budget for your new acquisition hardware. You can be buying your new hardware like you're budgeted for every year. You're going to replace 200 desktops. Those 200 desktops can come now, can come preloaded and preconfigured with your new open source solutions. And then as well, you can retrofit your existing systems, you know, on a on a staged basis but uh, the other thing I want to talk about too is you know we talk about corporates but you know there's also you know people that might be listening that are in the educational space and I know that I've been working on a a project in education and one of the things is that I found is that the the, the, the teaching staff may be resistant to change just because we've talked about that and and that um they all of a sudden they've lost their their position of knowledge and because usually you know if they can help the the students with something just go to the control panel and adjust this but when they have a new system in place all of a sudden they're kind of on a the same learning learning curve as as the students and it could be a little scary for them so i think it's important to use those professional development days ahead of time and and, and bring the staff on board and train them before they're uh, it's actually in the classroom
0: yeah, I think that, you know highlights as we say the people issue involved in the whole, in the whole mm-hmm. um, migration. Yeah, as always go there's people, process, and technology. So often projects fail not because of technology but because of the people issues in in, in the whole in the whole um, you know, rollout that you're doing. And this is sort of get some practicalities around like you know what what, what we do in smaller in the SMB market. We tend to be more active in. you know on the desktop side of things when you're running um, Linux there. You know, basically, you've got two choices. One is um, Ubuntu Desktop, and the other one then is to go, if you're going to do a whole integrated you know, same sort of operating system on the server as you've got on the, on the desktop, would be to go with Novell's SUSE offering. Um, you know, the advantage of going with the Novell's SUSE offering is there's this, you can say to people, look, there's this corporate that provides support. So if the partner that's providing support goes under, um, you know, then you can contact Novell, and they'll have another partner take over that support for you. Um, yeah, Canonical does the same In terms of their desktop support um, And obviously as we all know Ubuntu seems to be Rather dominant on the desktop And I think they made a compelling um, Linux desktop operating system there um, you know, And then if you're going to be running uh, Ubuntu on, the, on your desktop And typically on the server you know, You'll be running something else Either a Red Hat server um, And then I wouldn't recommend running Fedora as a, as a desktop In a production environment because, you know, as I've said before, Fedora is basically a beta software for um, Red Hat's uh, enterprise server offerings. So, you know, you have a lot of problems providing support for that. So, yeah, my recommendation is to sort of either go the whole um, novel route or to use um, Ubuntu on the desktop. And then basically a bit more freer to choose what you want to use on the, on the server side because, you know, end users don't see that. Um, but typically it's normally Red Hat for stability and um, support
1: and just to, to follow up on your comment about the support uh, that people are looking for so depending of course on the size of your organization I think it's really good would be a good idea for someone to like to designate someone whose role is to be the interacting with the open source community or with the vendor and also to try to find those online resources so that not everybody like today I come to work and I needed to you know, I got a. I inherited a spreadsheet that had macros in it. Well, macros don't work in, in OpenOffice, or maybe they do with OpenOffice 3. I'm not sure, but uh, before they didn't. So, am I? Who am I going to? Am I going to go and spend time on the internet looking around? You know, maybe I don't have time for that. But if I had somebody, a go-to person, or somebody who built up our own internal wiki. With uh, with usage tips and so on, I think that's a, another, uh, again, another management system, uh, tool to kind of get through the process.
0: Yeah. Look, I think it also comes down to me, depending on the size of the organization that's migrating, a you know, bigger corporate want wants to know there's somebody and they're willing to pay for it, um, mm-hmm. You know they can provide ongoing support all around the world to their different offices, you know, in different countries, and all of those good things. And that, and that the worst case scenario, you know, it's not that the company, um, the company goes under and then the support goes disappears. And that is where obviously corporates like, or offerings such as Red Hat, or Canonical for Ubuntu or Novell, really play in that kind of market. So you know, I'd highly recommend, you know, using a providing software like that. Supported with, with, with the corpus behind it um, to to enterprises. For your mom and pop shop, you know, typically there would be like guys who just buy Microsoft, put it on their desktop, and they probably never ever find Microsoft in they laugh for support other than to um, activate their XP or something like that. Pretty much like I think most people in the world have never really seen a Microsoft, uh, you know, spoken to Microsoft directly for support. Um, you know, those guys then they're quite willing to sort of use their um, local nerds on site. Kind of company to provide the um, to provide them with with their support. So yeah, so mm-hmm. I think it's also you know, but that's all part of the planning process. I mean, when you obviously in initial phases before you start the process, you will go through these phases and identify who are your key suppliers, what what distribution are you going to select and run with, you know, and all of this stuff like support um, costs involved, you know, where these guys are geographically located. So there's no point in sort of going with with, uh, with the operating system if they don't have any support in a particular country. And you know, sometimes that's a bit of an issue in, in Africa because most of the people don't have presence in a lot of the African countries. Um, so there's no real, real support there other than to f- sort of phone somebody in, in North America. Um, so, yeah, so those are all issues to sort of take into account when you're actually deciding on your deployment and migration plan. And, you know, often when people think about migrating to open source, we're just typically thinking about moving the desktops and, you know, the, the spreadsheets and the mail class, all that over to open source alternatives. But also where a company can benefit a lot from an open source is in their own internal um, applications that are developed. Now, most companies in the world have their own internal development departments, even though they're not software houses themselves. So if you're a big mining house like Yans Africa and you're developing software that's relevant to your mining operations and that kind of stuff, um, you know you've got your own developers maintaining that. Um, and where a lot of benefits can also be got from using open source software and, and as people sort of move through the stages of open source adoption, first of all, they'll start using some of the software inside their own organization to build their own software solutions. Then they start sort of contributing back in terms of bugs and maybe code fixes. And then eventually it might reach the stage where, pe- where the company realize, look, we've got this application developed in-house, we open source it, build a community around it, get everybody to contribute into it, you know, and it sort of becomes a… Issue even all the other players in the industry also start contributing towards the software because that is in fact not your competitive advantage. Um, if you're a mining house, it's not necessarily your software that's going to make you more competitive than your than your competitor. Basically, you know there'll be other there'll be other issues like your the efficiency of your mining operations and that kind of stuff.
1: Right, and I have to concur with that again because it, it expands your resources because you may have a say you have a six or ten people development team. When, when you get involved in the open source community and like you say put your you've gotten to a point where you want to open source your your software you you, you end up with a you know the whole community that that helps you and it, it just um, you know exponentially increases your resources to to look through those bugs to have them found to 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 enhance the software and so on
0: yeah no, definitely, so I think it's definitely something else which you know if you look at the sort of adoption. Uh, you call it adoption path of open source and corporates. Um, you know, there's definitely moving just beyond sort of uh, making use of the software yourself, but also contributing back to the community.
1: Mm-hmm. So maybe we can just recap some of the things that we talked about in stages here, Mark, in that, uh, you know, um, again, on how to be successful at uh, implementing this or suggesting it. So I think we started with, uh, you know, with the management buy in. And uh, how that can affect the long-term success of the project. And we also talked about uh, doing a an inventory of the existing hardware, existing applications, and software that are currently being utilized in the in the organization. And then uh, we went on to talk about identifying those those users that could be your key influencers. Uh, also, to identifying the correct users to to start with your rollout the ones that maybe aren't using those high-end programs.
0: Mm. Yeah, and to sort of identify your, you know, the, your expected costs, your expected returns on it, both tangible and intangible returns, and putting in place, you know, a process to measure those those costs and the, and the benefits that you're going to achieve uh, by migrating to the open-source alternatives. You know, and, and obviously sort of making sure that you, you have a, a plan in place, you know, a typical project plan, what you're going to do first, um... In in terms of writing a potentially on the server first and then moving to the to the desktop from there.
1: The invisible of migration behind the scenes and then moving forward where we put in the uh maybe the open source programs on top of the Windows platform, get them used to that before we move to the next stage, like I said, identifying those key users and then doing the training and then moving to the full blown uh rollout of VOS the
0: then. Okay, I think that's all the tips, uh, experience and ideas I have around um, open source uh, uh, migration solutions, migration plans. Um, If if our listeners have any other ideas, please feel free to add comments to the site. Um, Darlene, do you have any last comments or any other ideas you'd like to add before we go?
1: Well, I think we've given people a good oversight, uh, you know, of what what it would take to be successful at this. And I, and I know there are a lot of resources on the web, like when I was researching for this. There's a lot of documentation people put back on their experiences. And uh, so, I mean, it's a good um, place to start. Anyway, it's listening to the podcast, getting it in your mind. But I think that's all I have to share as well, Mark.
0: Okay. Yeah. Thank you, everybody. Well, thank you for listening, and we'll catch you in the next episode. Thank you for listening to Hack Public Radio. HPR is sponsored by caro.net, so head on over to caro.net for all your hosting needs.